Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. Reverting to the 1950s US racing scene today, we look at a superb, muscular colt whose four-year-old season still acts as the sublime benchmark for older horses in the US to this day. Tom Thule, such a frivolous name. It inspires images of unreliable time wasters and cheeky ragamuffins. To that end, Tom Fool was as poorly named a colt as one could contemplate, for he was the purest of professionals on the track, oozing ability from every one of his bulging muscles, and putting in a season that still acts as the older horse benchmark in the US. He was also synonymous with the 1950s racing scene in New York, both the city and the state. Only two of his 30 races were beyond its borders. But by the end, it was for the simple reason that almost no other horse in the country would dare take him on. Bred at Manchester Farm, Kentucky, by Duval Headley, the son of Menno was picked up as a yearling by siblings John Whitney and Joan Payson, one of the founders of the New York Mets baseball team, for their green tree stables. Although some raised eyebrows at the seemingly hefty $20,000 paid for him, that sum seemed like the bargain of the decade by the end of the Colts' career. As his trainer John M. Gaver brought him along, he increasingly liked what he saw. The winning Colts developed a unique and highly effective running style that the 1954 American Racing Manual saw fit to describe. When he is in action, he thrusts both forelegs forward and both hind legs behind him, for all the world like a horse clearing a hedge. As was so often the way with leaky stable staff, word got out that there was a good un around, so that when he overcame a case of cracked heels and took in his first juvenile race, a five-and-a-half furlong maiden at Saratoga in August 1951, he was quickly bet down to two-to-one favourite. He duly obliged, pulling four effortless lengths clear of his rivals. He was ridden that day, and in every single other race of his career, by Ted Atkinson. Atkinson was a Canadian-born jockey who adored his horses. He also had three nicknames. In the weighing room, he was the Professor, being the only one of his colleagues who enjoyed reading classical literature. To the trainers, he was the Gentleman, because of his courteous and honest demeanour. And to the less discerning members of the public, he was the Slasher because of his unorthodox technique of using the whip on a horse's rump rather than its flanks. In fact, he used this method as it was both more humane and didn't risk a horse running off a straight line. No guesses which of the three names he didn't appreciate. Tom Fool would remain the apple of Atkinson's eye throughout his career and beyond. He said, None of the others I ever rode on their best days could measure up with him. Two more quick victories ensued at the Sanford Stakes and the Grand Union Hotel Stakes, the latter seeing him easily dispatch Cousin, hitherto the season's leading two-year-old. Cousin got his revenge in the hopeful stakes, but it was very likely that Tom Fool was suffering from an adverse reaction to a recent tetanus shot, making it all the more remarkable that he still came second. Soon recovered, he polished off both the Futurity and then the East View Stakes at Jamaica Park. 
the latter on a sloppy track that he clearly resented, but easily securing the title of champion two-year-old. Connection spent the winter dreaming of Triple Crown glory, in turn watching their star cult grow to over 16.1 hands. Yet, it was not to be. Indeed, Tom Fool not only didn't win the Triple Crown, he never even made it to the starting gate in any of the three races. It was one of the great what-ifs of US racing. The season had started promisingly. Victory at an allowance race at Jamaica Park boded well. But then, in the Wood Memorial, he was overtaken late to lose by a neck to Master Fiddle, a cult he would normally defeat with ease. The reason became clear the next day. Tom Fool was feverish and listless in his stable, and coughing violently. Again, it made his performance all the more stunning. But it could not have been more ill-timed, and his ten-week recovery back to something resembling fitness heartbreakingly ruled him out of the classics. The rest of Tom Fool's three-year-old season was a mixed bag by his very high standards. A second and fourth place on his two return racetracks visits strongly suggested that he wasn't yet fully over his debilitating sickness, and connections wondered just how much it had taken out of him. But after a third place in the Midsummer Derby at Saratoga, he signalled that he was in better shape, and barely looked back. He won three and came second in the other two of his five remaining starts, and was now beating the older horses regularly including a seven-length romp in the Jerome handicap at Belmont. Tom Fool was still not to be messed with, but he had yet to show his ultimate abilities. Wintering in Aitkin, South Carolina, Tom Fool developed yet further. Always a strong colt, he was now absolutely bulging with muscle. He even had muscles in his eyebrows, Atkinson remarked. Further, his mental fortitude, already shown off in many of his races, had also morphed into something altogether more merciless. Perhaps there was something in the South Carolina waters. Equine artist Richard Stone Reeves admired him as an archetype of the American handicap horse, docile, a finely chiselled head, broad chest and long straight legs. A season of the top handicaps beckoned, but rather than shirk potentially huge weight burdens, Many owners saw it as a badge of honour for their horse to be so highly regarded, and the Whitneys were no different. Tom Fool took no prisoners in his four-year-old season, and no amount of crippling weight on his back or variation in distance was going to stop him. It started with a five-and-a-half furlong warm-up victory before he went to Belmont for the Joe H. Palmer handicap. Even the journalists who had been covering his career for the previous two seasons were overwhelmed by what they saw that day. George F.T. Ryle, writing for The Blood Horse, wrote, I can't remember when I've seen a horse so well turned out as the Green Tree Stables Tom Fool was for the Joe H. Palmer handicap at Belmont Park. Also, I've seen few smarter performances this season, for although he carried 130 pounds and gave big weight to everything, he simply toyed with what might loosely be called opposition. Connections then aimed him for New York's holy trinity of handicaps, the Metropolitan, Suburban and Brooklyn. Only won once before by Whisk Broom in 1913, it was a huge ask. Just four days after the Joe H. Palmer, and with the muddy track conditions that he loathed, came the Metropolitan. Tom Fool, with almost pathological determination, 
still found a way to win by half a length in a rapid time from Royal Vale. Gerald Strine of the Washington Post would later recall, Not all runners look the part of champions, you know. Some are almost effeminate. Others are plain. Tom Fool had the look of a killer. Anyone who would have bet against that look simply didn't like money. The two rivals met just a week later at the Suburban, at the same track, with Tom Fool again top-weighted £128. He made up three lengths on Royal Vale in the stretch to win by a nose, in the second fastest time ever for the race. Atkinson, ever full of praise, said, Not that he's ever run a bad race, but today's was his best. He was now so strong that before the Brooklyn, Gaver gave him an extra outing in the Seven Furlong Carter Handicap, where he carried an immense £135 to a facile two-length victory. Incredibly, he was then asked to carry £136, £26 more than the next horse, in the Brooklyn over ten furlongs at Aqueduct. Yet he poured it on in the home stretch, with Atkinson slowing him down well before the line. He had achieved the seemingly impossible. With a reputation that now dwarfed that of any other rival, it wasn't just other trainers who were running scared, but the bookmakers too. For his final four runs of the season, therefore, no betting was allowed. Whilst this was distressing for many racegoers, after all, as the great sports writer Hugh McElvenny once opined, horse racing without betting is like jazz without sex, it was also an opportunity to focus on a new legend in his pomp. One person, however, didn't watch him, at least not in person. Breeder Duval Headley followed the colt's rise to superstardom with interest, but noted that the only two times that he'd seen him run in the flesh, he'd finished second. He therefore took this as an omen, and would only ever watch him on television. Tom Fool predictably destroyed anyone who dared challenge him in those last races. He won the Wilson Stakes by eight lengths, the Whitney Handicap by three and a half lengths. Efforts were then made to pitch him against that year's star three-year-old native dancer in the Sisonby Mile, but the latter got injured and it never materialised. A smart move on the Grey Ghost's part, asserted Gerald Strine, because he would have been defeated. No animal on four legs was going to beat Tom Fool that day, not even a cheater. He finished with an eight-length crushing in the Pimlico special in a track record. Ten runs, ten breathtaking victories. The Horse of the Year title was his, and in due course, so was the National Turf Writers Association title of US Horse of the Decade. Tom Fool became an important sire. His progeny included 1960s star Buck Passer and Kentucky Derby winner Tim Tam. But even at stud, Atkinson never forgot his old friend, and vice versa. Even many years after his glories on the track, the stallion would recognise Atkinson's call and rush over to see him. Tom Fool was still smart. Somehow, the great ones almost always are. To find out more about Tom Fool and other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind. Out now and available online and in bookshops. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and share the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the world. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening.